in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to be here with the saints. We trust, Lord, that you will be glorified by our gathering. You'll be glorified, have been glorified by our singing to you, by our prayer, by the reading of scripture. And now we pray that you'd be glorified as we worship in hearing your word preached. We thank you this morning for your word, for your provision in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. If you could turn to 1 Timothy, chapter 3. As I do a little housekeeping. Reading verses 3, 1 through 7. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man desires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Well, good morning again. Morning. Uh, as you know, we are. This is our eighth. May not have known the exact number, but this is our eighth installment of our study on or the foundations of grace series. We have studied, as you know, uh, for the first four weeks of this series, we studied our philosophy of ministry. We worked through and we applied the purpose of the church to Grace Bible Church of Gainesville. Now we've taken the last few weeks and we have studied church leadership in the form of a plurality of elders. Now these two studies are, I believe, foundational for our church. And I also believe that they will set us apart from the philosophies of many other churches. Here at Grace Bible Church, we work hard to have a biblical ecclesiology. Said another way, that's a big word, but said another way, we work hard to build this church and its ministries, and we work hard to build them on the foundation of the Word of God, for sure. Now, you may have picked up on the fact that I said we work hard to build this church. For sure, we need to understand that Christ Jesus promised to build His church, but He uses us to do so. We can be faithful builders who faithfully build on the foundation of God's Word, or we can be unfaithful builders who build on the sand of worldly wisdom. It's our choice. We want to be wise master builders. 
who take the time to put in place a solid foundation for this church. A foundation which will withstand the test of time and the ravages that will come upon it. My desire, and I hope your desire, is to see this church flourish well into the future. This is the Apostle Paul's heart. When he wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1, if you turn there to 1 Corinthians 1, to set the context, there was much conflict in the Corinthian church. There were several factions which had been revealed. These factions, each, each, this, these different factions, each identified with a leader. Now listen to 1 Corinthians 1.10. Listen to this. It says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there will be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there, have, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? As you can see, Paul is exhorting the Corinthian church to be unified as a church. He wanted them to be like-minded, especially in their singular devotion to the gospel. Now, he knows that there will be differences. He understands that. But the Christian's desire must be, should be, must be to mend fences where they can be mended. Instead of saying, staying apart, especially on inconsequential matters. That's Paul's point. He wanted them to be, he wanted them to be like-minded. He wanted them to, to, to rally around the gospel. In other words, in Paul's mind, the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news that the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for our sins to reconcile the world to himself, that good news is more important than our petty quarrels, in this, in this case, and then their petty quarrels, speaking of the church of Corinth. Now, in the, rest, in the context of this or- exhortation, Paul spent the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 explaining the wisdom and the mysteries of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Clearly, Paul wanted the Corinthians to understand the importance of the Great Commission to go and make disciples of the nation, nations, that is, over their trivial disagreements. We must defend the gospel from false teachers, obviously. But much of what we fight about in, a, in the church is much ado about nothing. In other words, to use the, the, the one that we hear all the time, what does the color of the carpet or other matters of personal preference have to do with the gospel. And that's, that's Paul's point, is that these factions had been created, these factions have been created following these men, and in reality, the more important thing is to rally around the gospel. Has Christ been divided? That's, that's why he says that. Has Christ been divided? That's, that's Paul's point in chapters 1 and 2. Brethren, we must understand, 
I'm taking the time to say this because we must understand that gathering together as a church, even as small and insignificant as we may seem, is making a profound statement to the spiritual realm. Do you, not, do you understand that? That as we gather as a, as a church, as we come together as a church, as we are here in this room, as we listen to the Scripture, as we, as we come to know more about our Lord Jesus Christ, this is a profound statement to the spiritual realm. I'm said another way. Let me say it, put it simply. The angels are watching. If you don't believe me, look at 1 Corinthians 11. The church must put aside its petty differences and understand the souls of men are at stake. Our preferences don't matter one whit and even take away our purpose from our purpose. We are being fleshly when we argue about things that don't matter. And when we do this, according to Paul, if you look at 1 Corinthians 3, we're walking like mere men. Instead of being spiritual, we're walking in the flesh. That's Paul's point. We're acting like the world when we engage in petty arguments. Now, this is not me jumping onto you. This is Paul and what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, but it applies in every age and in every church and in every, every situation because we're people, we're, we're, we're sinful. And we have a tendency toward complaining. We have a tendency toward wanting our own way and preferences. Now, in 1 Corinthians 3, 5, Paul says this. Take a look at the text. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. In other words, he's arguing that those men may have given them the message of the cross, that they, that they may have been the vehicle by which they had been saved. But they, be, they came to believe because of the work of God in their heart, not because of those men. Those men were merely instruments in the hands of the Redeemer. Verse 6, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. In other words, he tells them that God is the one who's growing the church. He uses men, God that is, uses men like Paul and Apollos and Peter, and he uses you and I. He uses us. But we only plant seeds. We don't do anything other than plant seeds. And wait for them to grow. But who gives the growth? It's God, right? God who gives the growth. Now, this is what I want you to see. I want you to see this in the context of Grace Bible Church Gainesville. We are in the beginning stages of this church. We've been here, we've been doing this for a little over two years. This church has not been fully established yet. We need, to, we need to understand the importance of getting these things right, getting the foundation right. We need to recognize that Christ has promised to build his church, 
that we are only God's workers working to build the right foundation. Now, how do I know that? You might be asking, how do we know that? Well, just look at the following verses. Look at 1 Corinthians 3.10. Look at the text. This is what Paul writes. Paul writes this, According to the grace of God, which was given to me. Let me stop right there. I mean, he's saying that we know, Paul's, we know what Paul has written, and we, we see his heart through what he's written. Paul is saying that God is the one who has allowed me to do this. And he would say, I was a blasphemer. And God, in his kindness, saved me and put me into his service by his grace. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Paul says, look, I merely laid a foundation and then I was gone. I did what was asked of me by our Lord and I left to go where the Lord needed me. I laid a foundation, but another is building upon it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ. In other words, Christ, according to Paul, is that foundation. Said another way, the word of Christ is the foundation we must build upon. We must build this church upon the foundation of the word of God, the word of Christ. We must be relentless in this. Nothing else will stand. Get that. Nothing else will stand. Everything else will be burned away. That's Paul's point in the next few verses. Just listen. 1 Corinthians 3.12 Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man, verse 13, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on, on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Beloved, we must, we must take the time to get it right. That's why we're at, going back to why I'm even going through this. That's why we spend, have spent so much time looking at the foundation of this church. I fully believe that Christ is building his church here at Grace Bible Church Gainesville. This is his church. He is doing the work. We are merely his workers. And we must build using, using the right building materials, derived from the right interpretation of the word of God, that's why we took 17 weeks, 17 weeks last year. That's why we took 17 weeks to learn the purpose of the church. That's why we took four weeks to establish our philosophy of ministry. And that's why we've been looking at eldership for the past few weeks, to, to establish the correct structure for, for leadership. It's the, it's the reason why we will endeavor to study the, the, the book of Ephesians. As I have looked across the landscape of churches. I believe that in, in the rush to follow the philosophies of man, we have lost a true understanding of the church. 
Many people sitting in the pews don't know the purpose of the church. They don't understand. They don't understand the purpose of the church. And let me just say this, and I want to make sure you get this. Anything less than the purpose of the church set forth by God himself makes the church no more than a country club or a social club. If we don't understand the purpose of the church as set forth by God himself in his, in his word, then we're no more than a country club or social club, which has no power. In the hubbub of growth strategies and the rush to make the church look like the world, we have lost the true and power and authority of the church. So I, I believe... I've been led by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't like I set out to do this. I didn't leave seminary thinking I've got to preach, what, 25 sermons on the church. I've been led by the Holy Spirit to preach sermon after sermon after sermon about the church and its purpose and to apply that purpose to Grace Bible Church Gainesville. Some of you know that this fire was started from the very beginning of this ministry. And now the Holy Spirit has led me to preach Ephesians. We're going to start that soon, (coughs) which will further help us see the purpose of the church and God's grand plan of redemption. In the meantime, though, we find ourselves finishing up our Foundations of Grace series, at least for now. (coughs) Today we find ourselves in the last of four major points on eldership. Now, we've studied three of these crucial aspects of biblical eldership. First, we saw the characterization of biblical eldership. We saw that biblical elders, those who are biblically qualified to be elders, are shepherds at heart. They are tasked to lead, feed, and protect the flock. And they have a desire to do so. They, they want, they have, God has given, it's been, there's a God-given desire to come alongside and to lead and to feed and protect. We've seen that they are spiritually mature. They're men who have been tested. They've gone through the fire and they've proven and shown to be faithful. We've seen that they are overseers. By description, they've been, they've been charged. The, 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 the one who would be an elder, the one who is, who is a shepherd at heart, the one who is spiritually mature is charged by God to be the overseer. Paul says in Acts 20, set apart by the Holy Spirit. We've also seen that the elders are a plurality, that no one man can lead the church of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one man other than Christ himself who is the chief shepherd, the the great shepherd, the one who truly leads his church. The the ones who come under him, the under-shepherds, are the elders, and they are a plurality because no man has been gifted in every way. Secondly, we saw the the call to eldership. This call is is crucial to the body, to protect the body, to to teach teach and and to feed the body, to, to lead the body. There must be those men who God has set apart to be overseers so that the the body would would be protected and led and taught. We've seen it's captivating to the man. 
But these men are led by the Holy Spirit to, to have a desire to, to lead, feed, and protect. Tested. And these men are confirmed by the church. The church sees it. As I told one of you this morning, that, that, that the church, John 10, that, that the sheep hear his voice and they know his voice. That would be our Lord's voice, but they hear and know the, the voice of the Lord through the under-shepherd. It's evident. It's evident who they are. And then last week we saw the charge to the eldership. We saw that the office of, of overseer is high in accountability. Not, we don't want just any man to step into this, into this responsibility because they will be held accountable by our Lord. It's honorable, though. It's an honorable place to be. Because we're serving, as under-shepherds, we're serving our, our chief shepherd. It's an honorable thing hard though it's hard because we an elder is an elder all the time never anything less than an elder it's difficult you you're laboring for people you're laboring to see them as as paul says to see christ fully formed in them it's difficult sometimes sometimes we we struggle when we see people go the wrong way. We see people stiff-arm the Lord, if you will. Well, now we're going to look at the last of these four crucial aspects of biblical eldership. We look at the character of the eldership. The character. The character. First, we look at, let's look at the, well, before we start, I want you to understand that to that to explore every aspect of this text, we'd need three or four sermons, maybe more, on our text today. Verse one. I don't know if you noticed. Verse one of, of this text was points was uh, was uh, the last two points. We went. The last two sermons were just verse one. Having said that, I was hopeful, and I know Jonathan has announced that I'd be done today. I was hopeful, hopeful that we could finish today, but I think we may have to extend till next Sunday. I hope that I hope you guys will forgive me for that. I, I just, I just want to, I want to do this right. I, I want to make sure that we totally understand and get what Paul is writing here in First Timothy three, and I think we need to take the time to go through it. So, so just be patient with me, please. Now I know that before we start also I know that there's going to be there are several interpretations of a few of these qualifications and they sometimes will leave us with questions right so I hope that you'll take the time to come see me if you have a question about any of these qualifications so let's look at our first point the character of of eldership the character of the elder must be verses 2 and 3 exceptionally pure so we're back in first timothy chapter 3 exceptionally pure look at the look at the text paul writes an overseer then must be above reproach 
Now, what we're seeing here, what we're going to start in this section, is the qualifications of the overseer. Now, you might remember that we found that the concept of eldership hangs on three words in the New Testament. It's kind of a little bit of a review, but the first is poimain, which is translated pastor or shepherd, and this word emphasizes the man's desire to lead, feed, and protect the flock of God. The second one is presbuteros, which is translated elder. This word emphasizes the man's spiritual maturity. The third is episkopos, which is translated bishop or overseer. Now this word, episkopos, emphasizes the office which leads the church, the office of overseer. Now, in, these, in the New Testament, what we've seen is, is that these words are used interchangeably by the writers. Here, in this section, Paul is speaking of the officer, that's the office, that is, of overseer. This is the man who has been officially appointed by the Holy Spirit to be an overseer. And Paul says that this man, then, must be above reproach. Must be. Paul then is emphasizing that being above reproach is of absolute necessity. Absolute necessity. Now, what we're going to see or what, we, what, what we're going to find is, is that this term, above reproach, is the umbrella for all that Paul will say in these next few verses. It, it, it encapsulates it all. The word literally means not able to be held. In other words, the man who is above reproach cannot be arrested and held as if he were a criminal or transgressor because there's nothing for which to to accuse him. No accusations will ultimately stick to him. The language that Paul uses says that shows that he is in a, a... He is in a current, present state of being above reproach. It's not that he's never committed sin in his life. That could be said of no one. But what it does mean is that his his life has not been marred by some obvious sinful defect in character. He is called to set the highest standard of conduct and behavior in the church. He's called to to set the the highest standard of of spiritual maturity in the church. And anything that would mar him and and set that standard lower can't be tolerated. He must be a model, the model, a model for the congregation to follow. And in the context of 1 Timothy, if you remember he, he must not give enemies of the gospel, the false teachers, any reason to attack its reputation. That's really Paul's point, is that we need to understand that, that if there's something that they can grab a hold of, the false teachers, if there's something they can grab a hold of, then they, they have reason to attack the church through, through his reputation. And he certainly cannot give people outside the church reason to attack the church. In other words, they they shouldn't be able to point at the life of the overseer and make accusations about the church. As such, the church and her reputation is uniquely dependent upon the character of the men leading her. Did you get that? The church 
And the church's reputation is uniquely dependent upon the character of the men leading her. Uh, J. Oswald Sanders says this, When people who lack spiritual fitness are elected to leadership, God quietly withdraws and leaves them to implement their own policies according to their own standards, but without his aid. This is what I want you to hear. The inevitable result is an unspiritual administration. Beloved, when we allow men who are not qualified to lead the church, it brings reproach upon the church and gives people on the outside reason to attack. As Sanders puts it, the inevitable result is an unspiritual administration. Brothers, our spiritual lives, speaking to the brothers here, whether you aspire to be an elder or not, our spiritual lives have great impact both for good and bad. That impact is felt in your families and in the church. Your reputation, your spiritual life matters. Don't believe that it doesn't. When you're looking at things that you ought not be looking at, that matters. It affects other people. When you're not leading your families, that matters. Certainly when you're not leading in the church. You must do all that you can do to ensure that those on the outside cannot point to your life as a reproach on the church, even if you're not in a position of leadership. But brothers, if you desire to be a leader, if you desire to be an elder, an overseer in this church or in any church, it's even more than that. It's even more important. As such, in some ways, these qualifications are more for the watching world than they are for those inside the church. As a church, we should be looking at the spiritual maturity, the shepherding, and the teaching of the potential overseer. And if these are truly in order, then the man will meet the qualifications in these verses. Do you understand what I'm saying? These are, these are things that, that the, the world can look at and, and, and can say, yes, this is what this man is like. Not that we don't. Not that they aren't markers for us. But the, ultimately, ultimately, it's about his shepherding and it's about his spiritual maturity. And if those things are in order, then he will meet these qualifications. Our conduct, brothers, matters in this world. Your conduct in the marketplace matters. Your conduct in your own families matters. Now, for the overseer, though, he must be above reproach for several reasons. First, he's a special target of Satan. Speaking of the overseer, the special target of Satan. The elder will be assailed with more temptation than others because they are on the front line. They are on the front line of this ongoing spiritual battle. Satan and his minions will go after the men who are carrying on the fight. They will bear the brunt of the opposition. And any seasoned general, and don't kid yourself, Satan is very seasoned. 
He knows what he's doing. Any seasoned general knows to attack the weakest point. Therefore, we cannot put spiritually weak men at the forefront of, a spiritual, of, of spiritual warfare. Our best men must be strategically placed in battle positions. We cannot push spiritually immature men to the front lines no matter how bad they want to go. It's been said, the devil doesn't persecute those who aren't making a, different, a godly difference in the world. Especially, especially the overseer. If we push spiritually immature men to the front, they will be crushed by the enemy and they will become a great liability to the church. This is really, this is actually the second reason we must, the elder must take care to remain above reproach. His fall has a greater potential for harm. Satan knows that when a shepherd fails, the effect on the sheep is devastating. We've seen this over and over. The stories may be different, but the, the results are the same. A church is devastated when a man falls into reproach. When a shepherd falls into reproach. This is true no matter how he fails. Whether it's pride, sexual sin, or failure in some area of doctrine, the devastation is the same. At this point, Paul rattles off several qualifications in rapid fire fashion. Look at the text. Verse 2 says the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. The Greek text literally reads a one-woman man. Now, Paul is not referring to the leader's marital status, whether he's married or not. Had he meant this, he would have simply said that overseers must be married. He would have said that straight out. He wouldn't, if that were the case, I don't believe that Paul would have left any room for ambiguity. He wouldn't have used this phrase, one woman man. He would have said, an elder then must be married. Rather, the question is one of the man's morality, his sexual behavior, and his singular devotion either to a woman or to service in the church. We should recognize that many men are married only once, but they're not one-woman men. Many with one wife are unfaithful to that wife. It's commendable to be married to one wife, right? But if you're not faithful to that, to that wife, if you're not faithful and devoted to your wife, you're not a one-woman man. The one-woman man is devoted in his heart and mind to the woman who is his wife. He loves, desires, and thinks only of her. He maintains sexual purity both in his thought life and his conduct. Now, you may be wondering why Paul begins his list with this qualification. With this qualification. Why start with this one? 
Brothers, again, I'm speaking to you. Whether you desire to be an elder or not, you may even be a youth here. You may be a young man sitting here. It is in the area of sexual purity, above all others, where men are most prone to fall, especially leaders. Sadly, the failure to be a one-woman man has put more men out of the ministry than any other sin. It is a matter of grave, grave, grave concern. Now, I'm just going to stop here and speak to the women. If you're not working to protect your husband, you're putting him in a very difficult place. I'm not, it is his responsibility to remain pure, but you need to be part of that. You need to be helping your husband remain pure. Now, just like the United States, the good old U.S. of A., Ephesus was overran by sexual promiscuity. I, I think that we may be approaching, here in the United States, we may be approaching the level that they were at in Ephesus. We may have ran past them in the past year or two. Many of that congregation had at one time fallen into sexual sin. Now, if this happened before the man came to Christ, it wasn't a problem because he was in his flesh. He was dead in his sins and, and trespasses. But, but if it happened after his conversion, even before he assumed a leadership role, it was most likely disqualifying. I mean, this is, it is that important. A man must remain pure. And certainly if it happens after, after he's assumed a leadership role, role, it's a definite disqualification. These same standards apply today for men who are in positions of spiritual leadership. Again, what are we talking about here? We're talking about being able to, to bring reproach upon the church because of the, the behavior of these men. Scripture makes clear that sexual sin is a reproach that never goes away. Now, I wish I had more time to tease out more about the subject, but just know that the meaning of this phrase has been a source of much confusion. And in the future, I had hope that we'd be able to preach through, or I'd be able to preach through 1 Timothy. But for now... Let's just know that Paul speaks of sexual purity and devotion of the man to the woman God has given him or, or will give him. I don't believe that marriage is a requirement for the elder because that would preclude Paul himself from spiritual leadership. But having said that, the single man must have a singular devotion to serving the church and working for his living, and he must keep himself pure for the day that God would bring him a wife. He must keep himself pure for devotion to service in the church. Paul moves on to say that the overseer must be temperate. Must be temperate. A leader, a leader in God's church must be temperate. The word lit literally means wineless or unmixed with wine. Now, this word can or 
can refer to the use of alcoholic beverages. But it probably does not mean that here because Paul refers to drunkenness below. He says in verse 3, not addicted to wine. Referring to, to drunkenness. So, and, and it wouldn't make sense for him to address the same subject twice in the same pa- passage. And if he refers to alcohol here, then it would seem as though he's prohibiting its use in all situations. But that doesn't seem to be what's going on. So I take this to mean sober in the sense of self-controlled. Certainly this can be applied to the use of alcohol. But Paul seems to have a broader use in mind. In other words, the overseer must be sober and clear-headed. Drugs and alcohol cloud the judgment and should be avoided and would cause us not to be sober and clear-headed. But I think, again, he's being broader. It seems that he's calling for the overseer to be clear-minded in all areas of his life, never, never allowing anything to enter his mind or body which clouds his judgment. And I could even say further, to enter his life, which clouds his judgment. Beloved, we need men. We need men who are sober and clear-minded. We need men who are willing to live a life of sobriety for the sake of Christ and the church. We need men who are willing to to sacrifice themselves to be clear-minded. It's really not a sacrifice. It's an honor. I wish we would see it that way. It's an honor. Paul continues by saying that the overseer must be prudent. Must be prudent. A prudent man is well disciplined. And he knows how to correctly structure his life. He fully realizes that, realizes that, the wor- that most in this world are lost and disobedient to God and his word. He sees that the lost are bound for hell, which gives him a great sense of urgency and seriousness of mind. As such, because of this, he's a steady and a, he's a thinking man. He's serious. He's not rash in his judgments, but he, he's well thought through in all that he says and does. His mind is controlled by the truth of the word of God and not on the philosophies of this world, and so, certainly not on fleshly desires. prudent man is a man who unapologetically follows his Lord Jesus. He is a man who diligently cares for his family and for the church. His life is structured in a way that maximizes both responsibilities. Paul goes on to say the overseer must be respectable. Respectable. This this word has the idea of orderly. The overseer must, have, must lead a respectable or orderly life. In other words, his disciplined and orderly mind leads to a disciplined and orderly life. He's not a man who is, is full of unaccomplished things. He, he sees things to the finish. Life is orderly. He, he saw life is structured. Homer Kent says this, the ministry is no place for the man whose life is a continual confusion of unaccomplished plans and unorganized activities. 
A man who's not respectable is going in all different directions at all different times. An elder must bring order to the chaos of the church. He must never add to the chaos. A chaotic life indicates that a man is not ready to lead the church. He must be a man who manages his time well. He must be a man who is administratively strong. He must be demonstrate his ability to manage his own assets well to show that he can manage the church's assets, whether that be money or whether that be the gifts of the church. This is the principle given by our Lord. It says in Luke 16:10, "He who is faithful in very little, a very little thing is faithful also in much." And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. He's, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's saying that if, if a man, if applying it to what we're saying here, if a man is faithful in his own life, in his own situation, then he's going to be faithful to lead the church. Now, I said he must be strong in administration. I, I didn't mean that he necessarily is gifted in the area of administration, but he gives great effort to bring order to his life into the church. Paul goes on to say that the overseer must be hospitable. The overseer must literally love strangers. Love strangers. As Christians, we must practice being lovers of strangers. Hebrews 13.2 says this, kind of a shocking verse. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. In other words, we may never know, we never know who we may be entertaining, who God may send our way. We may not know the purpose of God sending them our way. As such, this requirement does not refer to entertaining those whom we know and love, but showing hospitality to those who we don't. Said another way, a man like this does not know a stranger. This means that while he's careful to protect his family, he is also willing to carefully assess the situation and open his home to those in need, even if he doesn't know them. Paul goes on to say that the overseer must be able to teach. Able to teach. He must be a solid teacher of sound doctrine. He must be able to formulate logical thoughts and put them together in such a way that others understand. He must be then a highly skilled teacher who works hard in his studies and in his preaching and teaching. As such, teaching is the only qualification here that sets the elder apart from the deacon. The deacon is called to the same life, the same high standard of conduct, but the, but the, the elder is called to be able to teach. We've actually said that this is one of the primary duties of the shepherd, to feed the sheep, right? Therefore, the elder must have the ability to teach them. He must cultivate this ability. Even gifted men, even gifted men must make the effort to grow in the ability to teach. 
Just because a man is gifted to teach doesn't mean the first time he steps in the pulpit or the first time he steps in front of people that he's going to be able to teach. That he's going to be able to do it well. It must be cultivated. It must be willing to work hard at it. The elder must be able to teach, but some have been specially gifted by the Holy Spirit as teachers. As such, it's a critical aspect of, of the elder's responsibility to the church. Therefore, the elder must not be a novice, but he must have a deep well of doctrinal knowledge from which to draw. He must not be a prideful teacher, though, who lords over the sheep. He must be one who leads the way. with his teaching. He must be a diligent student of the Word of God who, who carefully equips the sheep for the work of the service. The elder, the overseer, is always diligent to present himself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. He accurately handles the Word of Truth, carefully avoiding all error. Now, you might ask yourself why this is part of a list of moral qualifications. You might be asking me that in your mind. I hope you're being critical to that level. Not ungodly critical, but critical. Ultimately, your life and your teaching will match. That's the point. You will teach what you believe, and you will live what you teach. It's as simple as that. Right doctrine leads to right living. Let me just say it that way. Right doctrine leads to right living. If I, my teaching is good, if my teaching is solid, if my understanding of doctrine is solid, that will cause me to live in a certain way. That's what I was getting at with these qualifications earlier, that the outside watching world sees these things. But the man who has been transformed inside, the man whose doctrine is right, the man who's a shepherd at heart, the man who's spiritually mature will exhibit these qualifications. As simple as that. John MacArthur states, teaching sets the nails into the mind, but example is the hammer that drives them deep. Teaching sets the nails into the mind, but example is the hammer that drives them in deep. Therefore, the elder's life must be holy and his teaching must be pure so that he will not lead the flock astray with his life or with his teaching. You see how important it is that this is how important it is that this man be this way in the context of what Paul is talking about with the false teachers in the church at Ephesus that the that the elder the true overseer the one who's been appointed by the Holy Spirit must be able to teach so that he can refute those who contradict. It's funny how you think about James James 3 it says let not many of you become teachers. The, the false teachers are wanting to be teachers. They think that they know it all. They think that they understand everything. They want to teach their own doctrines, the doctrine of demons. And so the, the true elder, the man who's been set apart by the Holy Spirit, needs to be able to contradict these people. That's why his teaching is so important, and that's why his teaching and his conduct much, must match. Paul goes on to say that the overseer must be not addicted to wine or pugnacious. While it is true that wine makes the heart glad, Psalm 104.15, it also has the potential for great harm. 
Just like Titus 1.7, the elder cannot be, cannot be a drunkard. Now, I don't believe that this is a prohibition against all alcoholic drink. <clears throat> I don't see it. I don't see that. But let me just say this. I want to be, be careful with this because I know in our society where we are with that. I know, I know even in the church where we, we struggle with this. Let me just say it this way. The question cannot be how much can we drink before it becomes an issue. You, that, that's the wrong question. In, in 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul told Timothy, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So Paul does not prohibit the use of all alcohol. But we must understand that the wine that Paul is talking about was a much lower percentage of alcohol than what we have today. In ancient times, most people consumed wine since it was the, the, the main drink of choice because the available water was not pure, and they didn't have the modern technologies that we have to purify it. So mixing wine with water purified the water and significantly diluted the alcohol content. As such, they commonly used eight parts water with one part wine. You, those of you who know alcoholic content would understand that that is very diluted. Now, I believe it is instructive here that Paul had to urge Timothy to use a little wine for the sake of his health, because Timothy had been reluctant to use alcohol even for medicinal purposes. You understand what I'm saying? Timothy was willing to drink the impure water to make sure that he was living a life of sobriety. And so Paul had to encourage him the other direction. He had to say, look, you're, it's okay to use a little wine for medicinal purposes for your stomach. This attitude is instructive to us, right? Timothy had to be urged to use it, not the other way around. Again, the issue must not be how much, right? How much can I get it? How much can I drink to get away with it? How much is too much? How much is it before I get drunk? The elder must be very slow to put himself in a position of dulling his senses with any type of substance, especially to the level of drunkenness. Brethren, the church desperately needs men who willingly abstain from drinking alcohol or doing anything that will alter their senses in any way. Desperately needs men like that. who love the church. I'm not saying you can't love the church and drink alcohol. I'm not saying that. But who are willing to limit themselves because of their love for the church and their desire to, to be pleasing to the Lord and leading the church. The church desperately needs sober men in all areas of their lives. Paul goes on to say, we're pugnacious. The overseer must not be pugnacious, literally not a giver of blows, not a striker. The pugnacious man explosively reacts to stressful situations. 
by coming to blows. Physical violence is his default. According to Paul, the overseer must react to situations calmly and coolly, never letting violence be the answer. Oswald Sanders says this, a leader must be calm in crisis and resilient in disappointment. Willing to move on. Willing to fight another day, not physically fight. But Paul continues by saying he must be gentle and peaceable, but gentle and gentle, peaceable. The overseer must be he must be a man who is considerate of others. He's never boorish. He's never rough, coarse, or bad-mannered. He's always a gentleman, no matter the situation. He's patient. He's kind. He's a gracious man who is quick to forgive the failings of those around him. He doesn't bear grudges and is quick to receive criticism without thought of retaliation. He's quick to forgive when wronged. He leads in humility and and gentleness. John Stott says this, The very first thing which needs to be said about Christian ministers of all kinds is that they're under people as their servants rather than over them, as their leaders, let alone their lords. Jesus made this absolutely plain. Now listen to this. The chief characteristic of Christian leaders, he insisted, that would be our Lord, is humility and not authority. And gentleness, not power. End quote. Let me say that again. The chief characteristic of Christian leaders, he insisted, is humility, not authority, and gentleness, not power. This quality, if you think again back to the context of 1 Timothy, is especially important when confronting those who are in opposition. We should always have the hope of winning those who oppose us. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 2, verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Paul continues by saying he's peaceable. He's a man who pursues peace above all else. He's not quarrelsome. He's not spoiling for a fight with words or otherwise. He's not contentious. He has convictions. The the overseer has convictions, but he's not stubborn. J. Oswald Sanders again says this. Leaders know there is a difference between conviction and stubbornness. Say that again. Leaders know there is a difference between conviction and stubbornness. You see, the elder is peaceable. He's not a man you have to walk on eggshells around for fear that he'd blow his stack. He he pursues peace. John MacArthur states this, to have a contentious person in leadership will, will result in disunity and disharmony seriously hindering the effectiveness of that leadership team.
contentious person will always cause disunity and disharmony. And that will always hinder, seriously hinder, the effectiveness of the leadership team. Oswald Sanders says this, J. Oswald Sanders says this, if you would rather pick a fight than solve a problem, do not consider leading the church. The Christian leader must be genial and gentle, not a lover of controversy, end quote. Paul goes on to say that the overseer must be free from the love of money. He must not be greedy, must not be stingy, must not be financially ambitious. First Timothy, that is, 6-9. But those who want to get rich fall into, the temptation, into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now listen to this. This is what Paul says, 1 Timothy 6.11. But flee from these things. Flee from what, Paul? From the love of money. From the desire to get rich. Flee from those things. Flee from those things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Sounds like the same guy that wrote our our section, right? Brethren, the the men who desire to be overseers must be measured against these standards. These men must be above reproach in all these areas. Obviously, we all fall short. But the progress of the elder in all these areas will be obvious to all, for all to see. We've heard the army is looking for a few good men, right? The church needs a few good men. The church needs men who will stand up and are willing to follow Christ in all these ways. My hope is that Christ will raise these men up from within the flock, from within, from within Grace Bible Church, but that he will also bring other men here that will love him and that will want to follow him in this way, that desire to be, that desire to be exceptionally pure. Now next time, we're going to look at verses 4 and 5. And six and seven. We'll look at how this man, how these things manifest themselves in a man's life. Again, I wish I could have preached the whole thing this this Sunday today, but there was just too much. I hope that you are have you have been blessed as I have been to hear what what the Lord has revealed through His Word. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Again, we praise you for our time together. We see here in your word how the high standard of, we see the high standard of the, the overseer. Or we know that we all fall short. We know that we all fall short in 
in these ways. Lord, we should see evidence of progress. As, Lord, as uh, your servant, J. Oswald Sanders says, when God calls us, we can't refuse from a sense of inadequacy because nobody is worth such is worthy of such trust. Lord, we are inadequate. Yet we know that you've called some to lead your church, to protect your church, to feed your church. I pray, we pray, that you would raise up such men in this body to lead us, to show us your way. We thank you and praise you for all these things in Christ's name. Amen.